today we are about to open another can of Miller. Yes, it's Miller time. More Frank Miller, a rare 1991 interview in LA Weekly. He talks about Batman, Daredevil, Elektra, Martha Washington, Hard Boiled, Sin City, a visionary for all time, the man who changed the face of comic books, who changed Batman and Daredevil forevermore. We do another deep dive going 11 years past our most recent Frank Miller interview. This is him at, at, at full power, full throttle. We discuss all of it today on an all new Rob Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. I do this podcast on a regular basis. We we give it to you twice weekly and we talk about comic books and pop culture. What better topics to discuss than comic books and pop culture? I have loved comic books since I was seven years old. I have watched those superheroes, those characters become giant uh, magnets for worldwide domination in regards to streaming shows, box office, merchandise, video games, you name it. Superheroes has has been put on the top of that mountain for over a decade now. Something I did not think I did not think it was possible. Again, going to high school in the 80s. Uh I was in high school uh let's see 81, 82, 82, 83, 83, 84. Yeah. Graduated 85, went uh, fall 81, graduated June of 1985. During that time, comic books were not cool in the culture the way they are now. As my boys were going through high school a few years back, it was so different. Superheroes, thanks to the MCU, thanks to the giant commercial success of so many of their movies, as well as uh, some of the big DC Comics movies, specifically the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy this new generation looked at comic book superheroes in in a, in a different light what we do here is we discuss the past the present sometimes ponder the future of not only the comic book business but of the relevance of superheroes going forward from time to time and and you're going to say from time to time with this guy it's all the time it 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 kind of is uh from time to time we discuss certain movers and shakers powerhouses superstars in the comic book medium many of whom I believe and history reflects are crucial into pushing the comic books forward, getting them a bigger spotlight, getting them a bigger uh, place at, at the pop culture table. You got to have great comic books to excite people. You have to have compelling stories and characters that get the fan base riled up and that buzz travels. And because of that buzz traveling all around the world, it eventually reaches the right tastemakers who make those calls, yay or nay, to go forward and to hit all the buttons and the levers and uh, and, and push forward and make this stuff into giant, big-budgeted, $100 million superhero uh, comic book shows and movies. So we're on the other end of that. There's a lot of debate. Is it going to get a second wind? Is it going to get, uh, has it, has, have, have comic book movies peaked for the time being? All of that is going to be decided by people other than me. I, I have my opinions. I don't know that they're worth sharing because then they become polarizing and I, I don't want to polarize anyone on this show. The great thing about this show that is separated from my Twitter handle, my Instagram, from every single social media platform that I have interacted 
uh, with the public on is it, it's in my voice. This is how I talk. Uh, guys like Robert Kirkman, the creator of The Walking Dead and Invincible, uh, you know, a, a, a huge superstar creator of the last two decades. You know, he came on the show, uh, I think, end of first season and, and said, you know, Rob, people hear the way that you and I talk on the phone now. This is, that's the voice I'm hearing on the podcast. So I, I, I just want to talk to you, uh, you know, the way I talk to my other friends. And, and truthfully, there's no condemning anything anymore because once you condemn it, it, it flips on you and, and it becomes something other than what you were condemning. So why condemn it at all? And as I've said, in terms of movies and streaming and even comic books, lots of people go out of their way to put forth their best effort to make Project X, Project Y, Project Z work. So if I were to proclaim one way or the other, you know, it just it just riles people up because there's a, there is a, I don't know if you uh, frequent the social media channels that I do, the the, the Twitters, the, the Instagrams, the Facebooks. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a dedicated force. I'll call them a force of people who, who want superhero movies as they are right now to fail, to, to completely just uh, tank. They, they, they're just angry. They're raging and, and, and they want to troll and embarrass uh, the entire genre. They're tired of it. Maybe they're tired of it because they can't be a part of it. Maybe they're tired of it because it's mundane to them. Uh, it hasn't pushed forward as fast. Then there's the the people who they love this stuff. They love it. They want it to continue to uh, move forward. And and many of them, it's just harmless. It's just they just want to be entertained. They just want to sh- shut their brains off and and go and and be entertained. I can't tell you why box office receipts are down on a certain grouping of films, but I can tell you that there are many at bats. There are many people up next who have got their shot at making the next big superhero comic book movie, superhero, you know, comic book streaming show. So like I said, I generally stay away from any hard discussion of those things. What I love is inspirations. I love the inspirations uh, that, 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 that in many cases uh, informed these different, these, these different directors and artists and writers because they were inspired by these comic book guys. Well, today we are once again discussing in an interview that there is very, very, very slim chances you've ever heard this before. A couple of weeks ago, I did a comic book, a comics journal interview with Frank Miller. Comics journal is, is available. You can probably find it. You could probably find this on eBay. That'll be the only place you really find it. It is a 1991. So it is 11 years after the comic book journal. I'm sorry. I keep calling it the comic book journal, the comics journal interview with Frank Miller that I shared about a month ago. It is 11 years after the comics journal interview with Frank Miller was conducted in late 1980 and it saw print in 1990. This uh, was distributed in December of 1991. So we are on the precipice of 92 when this is released and it was conducted in late 91. It is from an issue of LA Weekly. Now, if you go Rob Frank Miller again, hang on, let me, let me, let me actually address some of that. First of all, the reason we speak of Frank Miller as much as we do is he's, he is a personal, um, for lack of a better word, idol of mine for many reasons. Let, let's take uh, some of the artwork that I buy, some of the big kind of, I see, I, I would say historic pieces that I have added to my own original art collection and they come at a, con- a considerable cost. And, and I'm trying to build a 
a refined collection of art. And so I'm very picky and choosy. And some stuff is actually, uh, sometimes they're, they're drawn the same, but one has more meaning. One, one compelled me as a child. It, it moved me more. I remember where I was sitting when this page hit me. That will always get the favor. Even if it's the more expensive page, I want the moment. I want the page that has the moment. It's more than a drawing. It's a moment. It was a page turn once upon a time that punched me in the gut and, 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 and gave me a cliffhanger that I had to wait another 30 days for. And, and it gave me stress and it, and it manipulated my emotions. That's a moment. Frank Miller's career is full of those moments. He's, it's full of those compelling character bits that you go, I remember exactly where I was when that happened, when that guy fell, when that woman was knifed, when, that, uh, when he pulled that person off the train tracks. Well, Frank Miller kept going from that comic, that, that comic journal interview, and he never looked back. And we're going to now check in with him, one of the geniuses of comics. And again, let me, let me tell you something. Often in my different uh, surfing of the net, as we all are, are prone to do, whenever I come across a picture of all of my favorite directors, and they were all friends, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, all of these guys pictured uh, John Cassavetes. They're all, they're all pictured having dinner together, sharing a meal somewhere in, in you know, uh, the Brown Derby up in, up in Hollywood, somewhere in New York. And when I see them, and generally they're, they're black and white photos or they've been treated to be black and white. Maybe, maybe uh, it's a color photo turned black and white for the sharing. But man, I just, I just stop and I get so excited because they're architects. They're architects of my childhood. They're architects of my pop culture experiences. And again, each one of those gentlemen, Scorsese, Coppola, Lucas, Spielberg, uh, Cassavetes, they all created moments for me. They, they, they all created moments. Uh, that compelled me, that moved me. And, and so this goes beyond comics to me, but it, it extends to film, to music. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a documentary on the making of Off the Wall, not Thriller, the album before Thriller, Off the Wall, where Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson first just exploded with their incredible collaborations and, and created just, in my opinion, his very, very best album, far superior to any that followed, including Thriller. I just love to go back and see when the magic happens, when the big moments, when the magic clicks. So with Frank Miller, it's 1991. LA Weekly is the newspaper. It is a weekly newspaper. It was distributed all over Los Angeles. Frank did an original cover for it. I'll share it with, with you on my different uh, social media platforms when you see it. You, you, you'll, you'll see the, uh, the thumbnail of the cover. I, I took it up to Frank, he, he signed it in 1994. It's, it's dated December 17th, 1994, where I had him actually sign the cover. I had kept this sequestered away. It's a uh, large, uh, like 12 by 14 uh, newspaper magazine. It's all on newsprint, but it's a, you know, it has a cover, it has staples. It's very thick. It's maybe a hundred and some pages. It's like, an, it's like a free issue of Rolling Stone back in the day. Or Esquire, uh, and, and Frank is the cover feature, and it's the world of Frank Miller: violence and heroism in American comics. And we pick up ten years after. And again, you know what? I actually did think about bumping this uh, because it follows the other comics journal interview with Frank Miller so quickly. But I got to tell you guys, if for some reason I don't boot up, 
I, I don't uh, make it back to the mic again. I want to know that I, I got the good stuff out there. So forgive me in advance and enjoy the ride because we're going to go pick some more brains of, of a seminal uh, figure. And, and I'll just read this intro to you so you see where they're coming from. The world of Frank Miller, violence and heroism in American comics. 15 years ago at the age of 19, Frank Miller left his home in Vermont to go to New York and draw comic books. He got his very first job within a week, cranking out strips for Twilight Zone comics and minor horror titles. A year later, he was assigned to a fairly ordinary Marvel comic book series, Daredevil, about a man who'd been blinded by a radioactive accident only to find that his other senses had developed into an ex- had developed to an extraordinary degree. As with many characters in comics to whom such things happen, he was inspired by his affliction to take a lot of gymnastic lessons, wear a peculiar getup, and become a vigilante with a cornball name. Daredevil was a middling success among Marvel's titles. Some fans had been reading it since the mid-60s and nursed a nostalgic affection for it. Miller was the illustrator of the comic for a year before taking over as writer as well. By the time he left Daredevil in 1982, it had become Marvel's most popular comic. It was also the most controversial. In the decades since Frank Miller left, as much as one would like to avoid the word, the superstar of American comics, when a new Miller work finally makes its long-awaited appearance, the event draws people to it like a movie premiere. Last December, Frank Miller signed copies at Golden Apple Comics on Melrose for a line of fans two hours long while Clegg lights flashed across the West Hollywood skies. Miller is not the best writer in comics, but as both writer and artist in American's most complete auteur, the homegrown equivalent of Mobius in France, who has had his influence on Frank Miller. No one commands Miller's combination of critical respect and commercial success. His impact on comics, says longtime editor Mary Jo Duffy, has been almost incalculable. He came along as part of a movement that started in the late 70s and continued through the 80s, and he changed the face of comic books. Boom. You know, again, LA Weekly, very well-distributed paper on every newsstand inside record stores, liquor stores, all across Los Angeles, and they gave Frank uh, this great, this great, like, six, seven-page feature. There's a cool shot of him uh, accompanying his art uh, with his arms folded up against a wall. It's the coolest I think Frank Miller has ever looked with his sunglasses. He looks like a, a, a you know, movie director or a rock star. It said Frank Miller's note in that movement has been created by a convergence of time, place, and instinct that was both shrewd and fortunate. When I came into comics, says Frank Miller, the sales were way down. There was a common wisdom that in a few years, no one would be publishing comics. And so there was a kind of excitement that was just looking for a place to happen. I was jumping up every down. I was jumping up and down every minute that I got out of bed because I was drawing for Marvel Comics. I was a country boy who had just moved to Manhattan, sitting on the rooftops, drawing the buildings and having a grand old time. And every month I attacked what I was doing with every ounce that I had. Comic readers responded to the enthusiasm of this artist. They reacted to his burst of energy. It doesn't have to be that well-drawn if it's drawn with a lot of enthusiasm. The story doesn't necessarily have to be Hemingway if the writer is sincere and takes it seriously. Comic fans are aware of how dumb most civilians think comic books are. When they see somebody taking it seriously, they respond. 
Man, I, I cannot agree more with that paragraph. And again, think about what Frank is saying, that in 1978, when he was getting his first work, that, that the common knowledge was the comics were going to go out of business. The circulation numbers were very bad. I've tried to detail with you and give you a really good uh, kind of understanding of the times. That were it not for, and let's beat that drum again, the Star Wars adaptation. Uh, and, and let me tell you something. Do you know how many people have listened to those podcasts and have commented to me that they did not know this fact of comics is part of history? Again, I've had some real knobs, some guys who worked at Marvel who challenged me. And when I showed them the writings of the editor-in-chief at the time, of the publisher of the time, uh, the comments of the uh, executive uh, at the time, that's James Galton, that's Roy Thomas, that's Jim Shooter. And then, of course, the, the, the godfather, Stan Lee, in his own words, in one of the forewords, they go, oh, I, I didn't know that. <clears throat> so many people just take for granted stuff that was way more important uh, behind the scenes than it was on the surface. And the difference in 1978 in DC Comics almost literally going out of business and cutting, they, they did cut half their line, was Star Wars. Star Wars pumped all that money. And it was right around that time that Frank was working at Marvel Comics, but DC had 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 uh, experienced an implosion. And look, with hindsight now, we, we, we see, you know, James Hobson and uh, Jim Shooter and Roy Thomas and Stan Lee come forward in the years after, even a couple of years after Star Wars, it was, as it was being collected. And they then share the finances of the times and how Star Wars rallied and put, went the, they went from red to black ink, okay? It's a pretty big deal in the ledger. The common artists at the time didn't know this. The Frank Millers, the young guys didn't know this because all they know is that every single person that they know at DC Comics, and that's a lot of creators, that's a lot of pencilers, inkers, writers, letterers, they're freaking out because their books got canceled, their plans got scaled back, their workload was cut because some of those books that they were working on were double-sized books because DC had commissioned uh, double-sized books. The, the idea, and there's a dedicated DC Implosion podcast that I implore you to listen to if you want to understand that, that entire sequence. DC thought that they were going to meet the market and be clever about it and give people double-sized books, twice the content and twice the price because they figured they would do much better at a dollar price point and they would give you between 60 and 80 pages of material. Well, that's what everyone was being commissioned on because they were shifting so many of the books to the giant-sized books. And then the cut happened. And guess what? You're not out of maybe 22 pages a month. Maybe you were doing 30 to 40 pages a month for DC. I mean, it was, it was some brutal times. So when Frank tells you that when he got in, in that late 70s period, that 1977, 1978 period, and he says, you know, basically everyone thought the boats were, were sinking. So, you know, we were just doing our best to swim upstream. Continuing with this interview, by the way, this interview is conducted by Steve Erickson. Steve Erickson, uh, looking right at the, the, the logo is right center in the second page that I am, uh, I'm reading to, uh, th this to you from the LA weekly is by Steve Erickson. He conducted this interview in his next paragraph. He says in rather typical fashion, this is Frank Miller underselling himself in order to make a larger point. If his earlier work wasn't as revolutionary as Howard Chaikin's sexy future staccato American flag, which more than any other American comic represented the form's quantum leap in the early 80s. If Frank Miller hasn't been the wild anarchist, like the Brit Alan Moore turning genres inside out and exposing the Superman, 
in his 1987 classic Watchmen as not the myth of innocent children, but of sick grown-ups. If Miller hasn't been as thematically adventurous as Gilbert Hernandez's Latin American microcosm of humanistic, <clears throat> I'm sorry, microcosm of murder and insanity and sacrifice, blood of Palomar, or as resonantly humanistic as Art Spiegelman's devastating miniature of the Holocaust, Mouse, or as narratively bold as Neil Gaiman's, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, with its serial killers devouring into the metaphysics of time and redemption. Miller has instead pushed the convention of superhero comics as far as they could be pushed, stripping them of naivete and glib idealism. I was always very careful, Miller says, to obey the letter of the law while utterly violating experience. You know, this writer immediately here shows his ass a little bit, wants you to know, well, I value these things better. I value Alan Moore's you know, body of work, Swamp Thing, Watchmen, even though Swamp Thing isn't mentioned, Gilbert Hernandez, Blood of Palomar, Gilbert Hernandez and his uh, brother had had done Love and Rockets, which blew up in the early punk rock comic book. Uh, that's the easiest way to explain it from Fantagraphics. Look it up, Love and Rockets uh, in the early 80s. Um, very, very, very edgy, very, very punk, very independent. And then Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman, and of course, Art Spiegelman's, you know, take on the Holocaust with, with, with mice called mouse, M-A-U-S again, uh, worth, worth every accolade I'd ever achieved, but it's weird. Like those Frank just understood. I'm going to give you the most badass superhero comics in the whole world. Cause that's what I love to do. And I'm going to do it as best as I can right back up there, up in the earlier paragraph. He said, I attacked what I was doing with every ounce. I mean, think about that. You know, I, I'm just not into, you know, you may love Sandman. I can't tell you if I love Sandman or not. I, I sampled an issue and moved along off of it. I came back a year later. I sampled another issue and I just realized it's not for me. Just like all music isn't for me. All TV isn't for me. All novels aren't for me. Um, and I, I certainly wouldn't compare Sandman, Dark Knight and, and Daredevil because I know what Daredevil and, and, uh, and Batman, the Dark Knight are. And I know what Sandman isn't. They're, they're just nothing alike. So it's interesting. So the guy really wants to say, hey man, I have really great taste. And he's already told us twice, Frank's not that great of a writer. He's certainly not as good as all these others. But for some reason, he's interviewing Frank, not Neil Gaiman, not Alan Moore, and not Jaime uh, Hernandez, uh, I'm sorry, Gilbert Hernandez. <clears throat> it says down here, in the process, Frank Miller also exploded the confines of the medium's physical form. I've talked about this on a couple of the different Dark Knight um, podcasts. I-, I love this. His latest comic book is a large size, 75 page published hardcover on high-grade paper selling for $25. If this precludes from his audience many of the 14-year-old boys, the measure of Miller's impact is that they're not his audience anymore anyway. Miller has brought to comics his own agenda. I wanted to write Daredevil like a crime story as much as a superhero one. Thus, while allowing for the various incredibilities of a blind man swinging from the fire escapes of Manhattan by his cane the action scenes and personal conflicts show the edges of frank miller's pre <clears throat> preeminent storytelling in his influences james kane mickey spillane dashiel dashiel hemmett in the late 70s after 25 years of strictly monitored comics code curtailing violence and sex a surveillance that in itself presumed and thereby assured that comics would remain an adolescent entertainment an audience used an audience used to action what 
<clears throat> which was never more than bloodless roughhousing, watched Miller wreak havoc and destruction, his most popular creation, a young Greek woman named Electra, whose incestuous relationship with her father ended in a sudden murder, became herself a hired assassin, littering the landscape with bodies before being dispatched at the hands of someone called Bullseye. The scene of Bullseye impaling Electra with her own weapon caused a sensation throughout comics, not only not simply because the victim was a character who had caught the reading public's imagination, but because nothing like it had ever been seen in mainstream comics in over a quarter of a century. I got to hand to you. Steve Erickson is, is, is wrapping up, you know, my 1981 consumption of uh, Death of Electra, of, of, of Daredevil 181, 181 very succinctly. I, I, I got to give it to him. That, was, that, 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 that put it perfectly. Uh, also, you know, they covered this in the comics journal. Many people, Electra had become the star of Daredevil. So by killing her, what? I was like, wait, our new favorite is gone. How, how, how do you do this? The, the article continues. This was merely a prelude to what was, to all that was coming. The violence of Frank Miller's 1983 cyber samurai Ronin was exotic and surreal in a project that gave Miller an unprecedented degree of control from beginning to end. On the heels of Daredevil, Ronan was radical and convoluted enough to bewilder much of the comic book audience, even as it altered the American perception of what could be done with the comic book form. The return of Elektra in 1987's fragmented and expressionistic Elektra assassin was underlined with dark political themes and disturbing moral implications rendered in the elaborate grotesque graffiti of Bill Sienkiewicz. It's the most subconscious and unsettling of Miller's work. Both Ronan and Elektra assassin were audacious and challenging enterprises of a wonderkind who moved quickly to translate his success and clout into artistic freedom. They were also universally and rightly regarded as difficult, and they might easily have been estranged, and they might easily have estranged Miller from the comic book audience, even as they were making possible the advances of other artists. But throughout the decade, Miller remained canny enough to alternate his experience and his experiments with more traditional projects, even if they turned out to be anything but traditional. It is true. You know, Frank was pushing the boundaries. And I was working in the comic store in 86, 87 when Electra Assassin came out. And that was a, as big of a, uh, just an acid trip comic with overt, co- I mean, covert, overt, both political uh, inquiries, uh, implications. I mean, a smiling picture of JFK. Uh, photo on a man's body was in in almost every panel for entire issues just you got to read it it's it's crazy bill sinkevich really pushed the envelope i've always wondered how much each of them were responsible for the bottom line you know who pushed who because bill was already pushing the medium but he hadn't pushed it this far so again what, what exactly what was the responsibility between the two but it is a fantastic piece of work that was not what people expected. It's also an, an Electra prequel, just so you know. When it says that throughout the decade, Miller remained canny enough to alternate his experiments with more traditional projects, even if they turned out to be anything but traditional. Continues, one was a new Daredevil graphic novel called Born Again that was almost entirely to use the current favorite Hollywood buzz phrase, character-driven. Miller had recast his superhero in alter, in alter, <clears throat> in utterly vulnerable and bleak realistic terms. 
By the story's end, Marvel had <clears throat> Miller had broken an unwritten command of the comic book characters. Daredevil was not the same as before and could not possibly ever be the same as a result. Miller did something similar with another tired old standby of comic books, an object of camp ridicule whose original danger had long been dissipated and forgotten over the 50 years that he existed. If this character was in transition of comic book heroes who addressed their traumatized childhood by wearing strange clothes and mauling people. He began the tradition in particularly flamboyant fashion as an antisocial millionaire who never married, spent a great deal of time in a cave, hung around an awful lot with a teenage boy in yellow tights, and, in a final Baroque flourish, thought he was a bat. What people now forget, points out Tony Edwards, the manager of Golden Apple. Golden Apple was the biggest comic book store in Southern California, the heart of the LA comic book scene. Uh, it still exists. It's a little smaller. Uh, it's still run by the family, the Leibowitzes. Uh, so, so when they're interviewing Golden Apple here, just know that that, that, that was the store that, that had the pulse. Um, what people... Uh, what people now forget, points out Tony Edwards, the manager of Golden Apple, is that not long ago, Batman was iffy, an iffy proposition. Either in spite of or because of this, Frank approached DC Comics in 83 with the story of Batman's last case in which Bruce Wayne is in his 50s, alcoholic and bitter, and well on his way to becoming a more twisted version of Howard Hughes. Long since retired from detective work, he's haunted by his dreams and death wish. <clears throat> that point by the Golden Apple manager only underscores what I've said on many different podcasts. Batman was not the 18 book character that he was being, you know, squeezed out today, being overexposed today as he is at DC Comics. Uh, I've covered many times his, his, his books had been subtracted. He was limited. He went from six books to two. The, the times just had moved on. They weren't, love, they weren't in love with Batman until Frank did this. <clears throat> <clears throat> Dark Knight Returns was originally issued in four separate chapters before it was collected into one single volume in 1986. Statistics alone do not convey the extent of its phenomenon. The excitement about it was unparalleled by anything that had happened in comics in years or maybe even ever. For weeks preceding the release dates of each issue, stores were bombarded with phone inquiries the way record stores used to get calls about an imminent Beatles album. Obsessives, who otherwise cared nothing about comics, got their copies the day that it hit the store. Dark Knight was written and talked about in places that never wrote or talked about comics. At a level in which comics were never considered or discussed, it, re it returned Batman to the aura of his early days before the sanitized 50s comics and the satire, the satirical 60s, 70s show, and made him once again DC's most popular character, spinning off entire new lines of Batman series and Batman novels. It was also no small in inspiration for the Tim Burton 1989 Batman film, having a palpable influence on its brooding romanticism. The first thing about Dark Knight, Frank Miller says, was that the world had to be a pretty terrible place to actually justify the presence of someone like Batman in the first place. Because there's no way a guy in a black cape who throws people through windows can function in an antiseptic, happy world. Batman was always my number one. From my earliest memories of comics, I always liked him best. He was the good guy who dressed like a villain, and, Miller laughs, I decided to make him a terrorist. That sentence right there would be much more loaded in today's comic book... Uh, <coughs> echo chambers than it was there. He is 
He's got some humor on that sentence there when he says, I turned him into a terrorist. The Dark Knight went beyond being even a comic book event. It became a pop culture event. Given such a response, there would be something satisfyingly elitist about reporting that Miller has done better work elsewhere. And Miller himself regards Dark Knight as a much narrower effort than Ronan was, which met with much less ecstatic response. I'd, I, I had set up this rigid panel grid, he explains, about Ronan and a great many ground rules coming in. The entire thing was like building a car. In fact, Dark Knight remains Miller's masterwork, something one can return to over and over, if not <clears throat> as to a great novel, than as to a great old movie. Among, among its flaws, the writer writes, the story is episodic in structure and a climax of potentially tragic power defers to, to one in which Miller instead goes for a trivial punchline. Electra Assassin is guilty of the same thing, he puts in parentheses. This, however, does not detract from the book's accomplishment a high order of pulp fiction in which adolescent melodrama is rendered with in, <clears throat> is rendered with adult intensity. I got to tell you again, this Steve Erickson, he is absolutely really nailing so much of what set Frank Miller apart from everybody. And you got to understand, you know, 1979 he breaks in, 1986 Dark Knight's returned. Uh, Dark Knight Returns is released. Dark Knight Returns is released. Um, w- within a decade, he has radically altered people's expectations and consumption of the comic book form. It says here, as with Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons Watchmen at the heart of the heroism that occupies Dark Knight's violent and depraved world is another kind of insanity, just as dark and ultimately more terrifying because it sets moral compasses spinning wildly. Miller's Batman and Joker archetypes of a nuclear id. The first, a grizzled old vigilante nursing his fury and bile. The second, a a garish sensualist so jaded that only death on a massive scale can turn him on. Next to this Joker, the Joker of Dark Knight, Jack Nicholson is a pal is <clears throat> is pallid and tedious. Miller wanted David Bowie for the movie role of Joker. Miller's depiction of Superman, who makes guest appearances, is the most merciless of all. Compared to Batman's outlaw, Clark Kent has become a flunky for the American political military machine and an instrument of the toothless blatherings of a senile ex-actor in the White House. More, prim- more primarily, for those of us who grew up on the Superman TV show, but thought, we dis- <clears throat> but thought we discarded whatever mythic hold he had on us, the scene of Superman detonating a Soviet missile high above the earth and being reduced to a withered flesh husk of bones, his red cape hanging from his frame like an old rag, will prove the ever-occurring and ever-disturbing power of childish things that we thought we left behind. I got to tell you, there's a reason I'm reading this article to you. It's good. This thing is written really well. Pre-war Superman, Frank Miller says, was the creation of a couple of Jewish kids in Ohio during the Depression who doubtlessly experienced anti-Semitism in their lives and invented a Gollum-like character who brought justice into the world. Then came World War II, massive waves of patriotism. And in order to sell Superman, he had to become, uh, in order to sell Superman, he had to be flying with an American flag, he became an establishment, an establishment character rather than the up from the bottom one, a supporter of the status quo. When I decided to put Superman in Dark Knight, 
It started out as a joke that I just sort of played out against the political parody that was already in the book. I had a lot of fun with it, but it made people very angry. In contrast, Batman was a nastier piece of work. By this very nature, he has always been, you know, they never changed Batman's origin from having his parents murdered right before his eyes. Throughout the Dark Knight series, I realized just how, just how big I was making. I was making Batman. Every panel, his shoulders expanded. His jaw got bigger. He even got more teeth. (laughs) I like that. I like that, Frank. Way to go. Telling it, telling it like it is. Again, and if you do watch and look at Dark Knight 1 through 4, I mean, make no doubt about it. The original, the, the, the early depictions of him in issue 1, he is, he's packed on 30 pounds, maybe more, by the, by the final issue. It's fun to watch artists grow. Gripping, disturbing, and blackly funny, The Dark Knight Returns alarmed a number of cultural commentators, as well as other comic artists, including Art Spiegelman. They decried Frank Miller's cruel, toxic Gotham City in which human frailty is for suckers and civil liberties are for sentimentalists. sentimentalists. And what they saw as the book's romantic insistence on the glorification of taking matters into one's own hands at the center of which presided an identifiable childhood icon in a particularly rabid incarnation. If If this rather simplifies Miller's politics, it also blunts their true edge. Which is his, <clears throat> which is an iconoclasm, sometimes so bigger, <clears throat> so bitter. Excuse me, so bitter and hopeless. It resembles nihilism. Miller's work implicitly regards all ideological doctrine as bankrupt and hypocritical. Both the befuddled right-wing president of Dark Knight and the glamorous liberal presidential candidate of Electra Assassin, who is nothing less than the beast, surrounded by a rancid and unbearable smell. anticipating Armageddon for its sheer entertainment value. This nihilism is mitigated only by a vague spirituality that manifests itself in stained glass windows rising on the tenement horizons and the Sisters of Mercy floating across the asphalt wasteland, pulling heroes from the edge of the abyss, from the edge of the abyss that grows wider by the minute. Telling you, this is a good one. This is a good one. So to continue forth with this uh, examination of Frank's work, we're, we're almost at the end of this. Uh, <clears throat> says Frank Miller's latest comics are further assaults on early presumptions of morality in a world that's immoral and in a life that never eludes the immoral conclusion of death. Both hard-boiled and give me liberty take, take place in futures that include the Orwellian corruption of worlds of words like peace and security, as well as a Philip K. Dick subversion of notions of both humanity and reality. In the first, a cyborg who may or may not be a tax collector or insurance collector or a family man or none of the above keeps waking up to his own non-existence. In the second, a black female renegade soldier named Martha Washington has been so betrayed and double-crossed she can only measure her identity in terms of the accounts that she has to square. It says here, as Miller freely acknowledges, both books belong to a large extent to his collaborators. The Art of Dave Gibbons on Give Me Liberty has the same detailed discipline he brought to Alan Moore's Watchmen, precisely observed facial expressions, which he draws better than anyone in comics, tells us more about Martha Washington than Miller's writing. 
which in this case is too expository ever to be really moving. Jeff Darrow's work on Hard Boiled is a ferocious tour de force, intricate, phantasmagoric, <laughs> so relentless in its mayhem that one can finally only laugh at it. Yes, the word is phantasmagoric. Look it up. Miller has not only been smart enough to get out of the way, he's fashioned a, sar- a sardonic, stylistic approach to Darrow's spectacular carnage. The characters talk in the quaint, minimal jargon of comic book dialogue. Oof! exclaims one obliterated passenger in a two-page panorama of twisted cans, smoldering steel, mangled bodies, and small blood-red freeway mushroom clouds. If Dave Givens is the straight man on Give Me Liberty, as Frank Miller puts it, then I'm the straight man on Hard Boiled. Originally, it was a much more complex story and a much grimmer one, but the artwork started rolling in, and it was so preposterous that I had to reduce the script to a series of anticlimactic statements. I realized early on that Hard Boiled was Jeff Darrow's show. There wasn't much doubt what we were looking at. I mean, why else would anyone spend a long time reading a comic book with only seven words in it? If you haven't seen Hard Boiled, Jeff Darrow's work is next level, detail, complicated, um, stacked. It is, uh, it is a feast for the eyes, and, and, and it is over-the-top violent in its depiction uh, of its action. It's fantastic, and I think Frank, ultimately, I think we all agree, made the right call. Uh, he says, this is the only other comic, this is only another comic book, <clears throat> this is only another ironic turn of events for someone who came to comics as an artist and found stardom as a writer. With exceptions like Stan Lee in the 1960s, the illustrator has always been the star of the comics, with the writer often scripting a story to the illustrator's strengths, ideas, rather than the other way around. Wow. Let's read that again, that felt really good. With exception. Of Stan Lee in the 1960s, the illustrator has always been the star of comic books, with the writer often scripting a story to the illustrator's ideas and strengths rather than the other way around. In the 80s renaissance, though, the comic revolution came from when writers who didn't write for kids anymore, except for Dark Knight. It must have seemed to many readers that Miller had abandoned drawing altogether, illustrating virtually nothing in the years since Ronan, but in fact, Miller was involved for years in a project that would not only bring him back as an artist, but reemphasize in extraordinary fashion, the visual nature of comics and the conviction that the story is not merely the words that go with the images, but the images themselves. Electra lives again as a fever dream of a book in which the obsession of a man whom we might recognize as Daredevil, although he is only briefly seen in that guise. Teeters as precariously between reality and madness as the man himself on a concrete precipice overlooking New York City. Over and over in the night, he slips from one dream into another to cross a graveyard into the a graveyard into the snow, clear the ice from a tombstone, read with his fingers the same name of a woman he can't forgive himself for wanting. When the blind can no longer trust even the mind's eye, the world becomes a whole new shard, <clears throat> a whole new shade of darkness, exotic and violent, with Electra more fully manifest than ever as, Jun- as Jungian Lilith, the predatory ghost who sexually haunts men in their sleep. The book cannot be reduced to a plot because what it's really about lies in its images, at once vivid and vaguely irrational. It's plot because it's really, and vaguely irrational, excuse me, figures sharply defined yet lacking detail. The only deep lines in a man's face ever shows are those of anguish at the book's end. Stand in deep contrast to the intricacies of stairways that plunge forever and cracked cathedrals overgrown with dead vines. Electra is a book to read 
with the senses. Linear execution will only be a disappointment. The beauty of what it looks like isn't expertise from its story. It is the story. Miller calls it the hardest job that he has ever created. Wraps up saying, notwithstanding the contributions of Jeff Darrow, Dave Gibbons, Bill Sienkiewicz, born-again artist uh, David Mazzicelli, and Dark Knight inker Klaus Janssen to Frank Miller's work, Electra is striking evidence of his most important collaboration. Miller met Lynn Barley 10 years ago in New York when she was teamed with American Flag's Howard Shakin on another project. Miller needed a colorist for Ronan the monochromatic work Varley had done on Dark Knight. Blues, grays, dark greens gave that comic, for all its epic dimensions, the look of a noir documentary in which judicious explosions of color burst only on a dramatic occasion. The The silhouette of a man with a brazen red S on his chest on his way to rendezvous with an incandescent incandescently yellow nuclear wind the saturated luxuriant care uh, colors of electra as much as any other single element of the book evoke the dream logic of the story recalling hitchcock's vertigo a lot of working with lynn barley says frank miller is leaving to her the volume and the temperature of the project the texture and the lighting lynn really wanted electra lives to be as lush as it is the sheer labor we put in it was very heavy over the number of years, because it was interrupted briefly by Dark Knight. I'd done a fair amount of the art on it prior to Dark Knight and then came back later and threw most of it out. It was one of the best collaborations imaginable. It nearly killed us both. And you can see it. Electra Lives Again is... I am uh, embarrassed I haven't discussed it more. <clears throat> it is striking. It is, if you can get the original album, it was it was sized like a like a European album hardcover that Marvel released. It's amazing. Uh, <clears throat> it ends here with saying, if one were to distill Frank Miller's 15 years in comics to a single theme, it would be the one that draws people to comics in the first place. The nature and meaning of heroism. Somewhere early in the three-hour interview at Musso and Frank's in Los Angeles, Miller said this about comics. It always struck me as very silly to have these larger-than-life heroes in a world that didn't need them. By the end of the interview, he didn't remember saying any such thing. It just doesn't sound like something I would say, he recalled. Which means either he meant something quite different than the way it sounded, or his feelings about heroism are more complicated than any two comments can convey between them. Miller identifies the pop superhero as an American phenomenon, and in many ways, rightly, the superhero, not to be confused, with the Superman. I believe, observes Frank Miller, who was raised a Catholic, that there is a cultural, religious root to the superheroes, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, who created Superman, Bob Kane, who created Batman, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, they were all Jewish men. For them, the superhero was a powerful mythological image, one that suffered incredible oppression, and that's why these characters have some tether to the reality. It makes sense to me that the young Jack Kirby, threatened by American Nazis in the streets of Manhattan, would turn around and create Captain America. That's what the flag meant to him. Superheroes in comics tend to be done most successfully by people who have some volcanic sense of longing and courage that they can bring to the work. In his 1987 Daredevil graphic novel, Born Again, Miller strips the hero of absolutely everything. He has lost his sight years before and the love of his life. Now he loses the world that he built in defiance of these deprivations, his livelihood, his reputation, and his honor, his physical well-being, and worst, his faith. 
The rest of the story is one of one of survival against an alliance of evil, intolerance, bad luck, and spiritual defeat. When things go wrong, they go wrong fast. And the hero is the one who can come back from that kind of defeat. It may say a great deal about where Frank Miller's work goes from here, but in Born Again, such heroism is achieved without ever putting on a mask. The mere mention is a more her- is <clears throat> is more heroic than Superman ever was. This is a banger of an interview. This is a banger of an article. I, I got to tell you, it's the reason I shared it with you guys. It came along to me right as I was, uh, you know, in the middle of X Force. I had uh, done my done my stuff on New Mutants. I had uh, been inspired, Frank, the entire time. I just kept looking at New New Mutants as my daredevil. If I can turn this around, if I can take this to the top, I could achieve what Frank did. I tried to shift focus just like Frank did. He is a great example for everybody who followed him. I think the last interview, the Comic Journal interview, I really wanted to establish how young he was. And here we are catching up with him 11 years later, and he's already created all these other benchmarks. You know, at the time, it's just Daredevil. But here, 11 years later, you've got Dark Knight. You've got Elektra lives again. You've got Hard Boiled. You've got... uh, Martha Washington, you've got Ronan. I mean, he has been he has been working. He has been uh, prolific, and he did earn his voice as, as a writer, standalone writer that would work with other seminal talents like the aforementioned David Mazzuchelli, Bill Sienkiewicz, uh Dave Gibbons. I mean, it really is just an incredible resume, and then a resume, and then from here, and the cover of this. Uh, LA Weekly, LA Weekly, <laughs> LA Weekly. You'll see there's some Sin City here. There's some Sin City. There's some Batman. That the, the cover has a mixture. It's a it's a bunch of different. It's like a it's like a a page. It's got different panels. It's like an interior page of a comic book. But Frank just kind of doodled each panel in a different style. Again, I drove up when he was signing Sin City hardcovers that were released. I drove up to meet him at Golden Apple. Dan Frega hopped in the car with me. It was a Saturday afternoon. Frank was doing his signing. I made sure I bolted up there. I brought all my hardcovers. I had him sign each and every one. I'd already spoken to Frank on many occasions, but this was a time to just kind of share another like FaceTime with him because I still do. I, I, I revere him. I revere him and his accomplishments and his tenacity and his, uh, his prolificness as he continues to draw work that, again, I find compelling. He has created moment after moment after moment after moment. It's not just art. They're moments. They're feelings. And so uh, given that this LA Weekly is not likely to crop up in anyone else's podcast or uh, YouTube, I figured let's get out of the way. Hopefully you saw how the world saw Frank in 1991. They contribute the Batman movie to him. They contribute a greater uh, you know, use of R-rated violence and uh, an action to, to what he accomplished going back to Daredevil. They attribute Batman selling again, being relevant again to Frank. I mean, it's a big deal. The guy, again, occasionally just wants to remind you how much he likes other names. That's fine. But he can't get around. I think he said early in the, in the interview that like Frank has uh, done what very few people do. He has managed to combine critical acclaim with commercial success, which is not always easy. And Frank did it, and he's done, he's done it better than anybody over the course of his career. So we jumped 
11 years since the last uh, interview and you got a different perspective. And also at this point, Frank has relocated to Los Angeles. He is he has already uh, written the sequel to RoboCop to uh, RoboCop 2, which already was uh, re- released because for so many of you back before they remade RoboCop and they spin off bad sequels, the original was a classic that, that kids of the summer of 1987 will never forget in the way that they consumed it. We didn't expect that level of violence, that level of uh, candor, uh, just vulgarness. But it read, it, it presented itself like a, a Frank Miller comic book, the evil corporations, the technology, the hardened hero, the loss. And, it, and, and they went on to admit that they were very much influenced by all Frank Miller's work. So why wouldn't they hire the Frank Miller to do the sequel? So Frank is now an L.A. boy at this time when, when he has, has this L.A. Weekly uh, coming out. Again, Frank uh, is one of those guys. He's one of the most important people, you know, in the history of the comic book medium. He is uh, in, the, in the world of film, a Spielberg, a Coppola, a Scorsese. And so when I talk about him, you should listen. You should learn. He is uh, a master of, of storytelling and also really a master of, of a chameleonistic, stylistic approach. He just changes with every project. He becomes a different dude. He bends his art to the subject like nobody I've ever seen before. The rest of us, we followed. We've gone, oh, Frank's doing that heavy, you know, chiaroscuro style where it's just shadows. Yeah, let's do that. Well, we're only doing it because he's doing it. Now, you could say maybe he was getting it from from a Russian artist or very much uh, from a detective graphic novel that Jim Steranko did. Great. You know, everyone sourced. And uh, and that may be a, a, a podcast in the future, the sourcing and the swiping going even deeper, deeper into that. But anyway, we put a cherry on top of Frank Miller. We did him twice in one month. Uh, I hope it wasn't too much for you. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did sharing it. You, you, uh, y'all, all you listeners, you're, you're just the best. Your feedback is great. When you um, get excited about something, you're so eager to share it. I, I love hearing about it. You all were extremely uh, vocal on the recent AI, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, making its way into music, movie, and, and comic book art. That, that, that episode really hit a nerve, really got a response. I, I, I heard back from so many of you and, uh, I just want to thank you again for your support. And, you know, again, my conclusion will always be man will overcome. Man can create styles that the computer can then adapt. Uh, and I'm really in firm belief. Some of you are very fatalistic, wanted to warn me that I went, 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 too, uh, went too soft and that the that computers are going to take over, you know, my, my home computer system, my, my internet, everything, and turn on me. I, I don't rule that out, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, fret about it it's not something i'm gonna get scared over like if that's the way we go that's the way we go yes if the if the look obviously i'm a grown man i i have i have i i write science fiction and fantasy stories uh i also pay attention to the news my entire life since i was a young young boy and, and have been politically wired and i understand that the artificial intelligence can take over our you know computers uh, getting all the way into our military operations and trigger nuclear war. I saw that movie. It's called War Games. Thank, thank you, Matthew Broderick, for um, and maybe it was Ali Sheedy for saving the day. Thank you to both of them. But 
the bottom line, we've seen that. We 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 know that warning is is coming. It, it, it's not science fiction anymore. It feels like science fact. I watch, you know, clips of Elon Musk uh, warning us of the same, and and how we have to really uh, get ready to regulate AI. I get all of it. I was speaking only of the art. Again, I don't want to get too dire and go down too many crazy rabbit holes and become too crazy polarizing. There's plenty of time to be polarizing later. If everything stays the course in about a year from now, this show, this show will be the one with the nuclear radiation because I will go thermonuclear and it will be hysterical and you'll want to be here for that. In the meantime, at the end of every show, I read your reviews. You guys send them in. It helps us. It helps separate us on the platform. The reviews, the five stars, the kind words, they go a long way. They separate us. They, uh, they, they, they attract people to the show. I thank you so much for your generosity in sharing your enthusiasm and in keeping with the AI, no less than uh, our, 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 our latest and greatest uh, review came from a, gen- a gentleman named J. Antonio 74. He writes artificial intelligence. He gave us four, five stars. Uh, he says the plagiarists have always existed, but they always reach a burnout stage. Regardless of technology, beautiful voices and handmade creations have a soul and capture a moment or emotion. Copy all you want. We always remember the originators, not the copycats. Hey, high five to you. I hear you. You are scratching my own sentiments. I believe in mankind. Like I said, I believe in mankind and our ability to innovate, um, even while they're burning us down, thrusting nukes on our head. Come on. I'm saying that with a tongue firmly in my my cheek. Thank you, uh, Jay Antonio74. I really appreciate I appreciate the 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 kind words, taking the time to 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 you know type something out, hit send. Um, I, I just, again, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate all of it. I appreciate all of you, all of you who are sharing this enthusiastically with your friends, with your stores, listening to this on your commutes, when you jog, when you work out, whatever. Uh, I just hear what you guys share with me. I just thank you. Thank you. And thank you. So there's a window of opportunity that is running through July with CGC. They are the number one comic graders. They dominate the space. They have exploded in the last three years, especially since the pandemic. Boom. Uh, slabs, as we like to call them, our shorthand for them, and grading, getting your books refined, um, getting them graded, getting that 9.8, that 9.6, hopefully that 9.8 each and every time. Uh, They do private in-house signings. I've never done one before. Many of my peers are on their second, their third, someone on on their fourth. I have never done it before. Right now, go to CGC online, put CGC in, go to their website, go to the news, find the Rob Liefeld private in-house signing, Click on those forms and get ready to submit your books for me. This runs through July. They will be taking your books up until the Sunday of San Diego Comic-Con, at which time then early in August, I I am going to Florida. I will sign them all there. They will be handled by the different staff. You will have prepared them. I work um, regularly with a man named Dave Dave Hong. He has a uh, a business called Key Collectibles. He's also with me on my Whatnot shows. I'm going to talk about Whatnot here in a minute. But he is a dedicated and uh, decorated, trusted CGC witness. He uh, handles all of my work and has for about the last six and seven years. We've had great success in getting people really great grades. We understand how it's done. He'll be alongside me. We'll be there in Florida, carefully signing all your books. There's a menu of different options. The Liefeld label, the distinct Liefeld label is still available. I'm, I'm giving consideration to expanding some of the other platforms that sold out immediately the day of. And I thank you for that. But right now, CGC. Uh, this is the window. We are in late April. 
It runs through May, June, and all of July to get your books to me. And I'm going to tell you that Deadpool 3 movie, it's going to, you're going to start seeing set photos and you're going to be like, why didn't I send in my books faster? Um, the hype is going to catch you. We're trying to catch you before the hype overwhelms you. Get on this CGC private in-house signing. Send your submissions to them now. Go online. Look at Rob Liefeld. Fill out your forms. So on social media, I'm on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I love to talk to you guys. Some I, I figure this is the day I won't have the blue check anymore because they're they're taking them away. Uh, I'm at Robert Liefeld. I used to use the blue check to tell you that it was me and not the phonies. But um, I'm going to be there. I love talking to you guys. Whether I have a blue check or not, I, 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 I want to talk to you. I want to interact with you. I love all of the ways that we speak and share DMs, replies, messages. Thank you for following me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. I actually got the short form name, the common name, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. It is my photo dump that my kids think is cringe. I will put my drawings, my food, wherever I'm traveling with my family, my beautiful wife, uh, having fun. Uh, I'll put it on Instagram. I invite you to follow me over there. Sometimes I preview the stuff that I have coming. Um, Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Still have that, again, blue check, which is there just to tell you that I'm not fake. It's real. It's me. Thank you for following me at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. On Facebook, we have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Look it up. Uh, Submit to join. It'll be myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. We'll click you on through. We are the co-moderators of that page and have been for years. Uh, the conversations continue over there on the Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond page. Uh, people are making custom action figures and showing them to you. People are sharing their comics, their graded books. We're, we're talking about topics from the show. We get to go uh, further, deeper. Uh, we'd love to, we just love to see you over there. Join us, Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Uh, submit uh, for the membership. We'll click you on through. Look forward to hanging with you over there. There's an app, it's called Whatnot. It has revolutionized the online collectible business. If you want Yu-Gi-Oh cards, Pokemon cards, if you want Magic the Gathering, if you want sports memorabilia, if you want comics, Funkos, artwork, this is your place. I have a dedicated stream. I'm on twice a week. We're shifting to a Wednesday, likely Friday model uh, as we head into this spring and summer season. I have signed Funko Pops, signed toys, uh, signed comics. I do custom remarks. Uh, you'll find out what a rainbow chisel is, a drop shadow chisel, a blood splatter chisel. Yes, these are all strange things, but you have to watch. I am on live during the live stream. I am looking right into the camera, talking to you, holding up the books that we put up to share for auction that you can obtain. There's a there's a dedicated store that you can get our exclusives. I have multiple Deadpool exclusives on Whatnot. They're only on Whatnot. Some of them are with Whatnot. I have a New Mutants exclusive. I have a Spider-Man exclusive. I have a Brigade exclusive. We have no shortage of exclusives, and we would love to share them with you over on uh, the Whatnot stream. I'm Rob Liefeld. Go on Whatnot. Follow me. Download the app. Follow Rob Liefeld. You'll get notifications when I'm about to go live, and hopefully I will see you there because it is an extension of this. I am talking nonstop for two three hours. So it's way more blithering and talking uh, than I do here. And it's a little more unhinged. So I invite you to follow me on whatnot. And I look forward to seeing you there. You guys, Woo! that's a lot because we've added the CGC component too now. Hey, I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourself. You know, my motto is to go and have a cheat day, cheat days. Let's go cheat days, plural. Uh, make sure you're reading a comic book along with that peanut butter cup, that Twinkie, that donut that shake, that latte, that, uh, that frappuccino. Oh, I used to pound those frappuccino. So good. Best whipped cream. Starbucks, 
best whipped cream, man. They put all the heavy cream in that thing. Okay. Look, tacos, pizza, lasagna, uh, whatever, whatever's your pleasure, whatever is that food that gets you to tingle and whatever that fun show or movie that you've been dying to see that comic book, do it, just do it, get away, do it. So you can recharge. I am rooting for you. You spiritually, mentally, uh, uh, physically, and emotionally. I want you to be well. I want you to be okay. And to feel free to take that time to recharge your batteries. Because I do. Please do not go far. Come back. See me. I'm going to be here waiting for you. We will inevitably, absolutely, and without fail, talk again real soon.